On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we'll talk to comic book artist Elena Casagrande, who is currently bringing Doctor Who to life for Titan Comics. And I go on a nerd rant about the unfortunate and all too predictable lessons Hollywood seems to be taking from the big screen success of Deadpool. Now, straight from the drawing room within the TARDIS, this is 1.21 Gigawatts. Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number three for March 2016. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. If all that sounds good to you, you're in the right place. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. Geek Rant! It's always my intent to celebrate great geek culture content and focus my fandom on the positive, and to try to avoid getting bogged down by nooks and crannies of fandom I don't care for. There are plenty of faceless internet trolls who are more than happy to fill that role. And yet, as every fan of genre entertainment can attest, sometimes something crawls under your skin and you just have to go off on a geek rant. And I've got one for you today regarding the Deadpool effect. On the weekend of February 12th through the 14th, Deadpool opened to massive box office success and a mostly positive critical reaction. It proved that years of development paid off and that this violent, self-aware, wisecracking, fourth-wall-breaking superhero character indeed deserved a big-screen turn at bat after years of corporate executive hand-wringing. 20th Century Fox spent years thinking, this character swears a lot. He decapitates people. There's sex. He eats chimichangas. How do we put this non-commercial character on screen? But ultimately, they trusted a director who understood the irreverent point of the character, a lead actor who was a fan of the character and spent years trying to develop the story in a relevant way, and a marketing team who did a heroic job of setting the tone of the film. And the result was a ravenously happy fan base and a gross of over $730 million worldwide in just six weeks of release. During Deadpool's jaw-droppingly good opening weekend, when it took in more than double its production budget and broke all kinds of records, including biggest opening for a film featuring a discussion about avocado sex, director James Gunn chimed in on its success. The Guardians of the Galaxy director wrote the following. Deadpool was its own thing. That's what people are reacting to. It's original, it's damn good, and it was made with love by the filmmakers, and it wasn't afraid to take risks. For the theatrical experience to survive, spectacle films need to expand their definition of what they can be. They need to be unique and true voices of the filmmakers behind them. They can't just be copying what came before them. So, over the next few months, if you pay attention to the trades, you'll see Hollywood misunderstanding the lesson they should be learning with Deadpool. They'll be greenlighting films like Deadpool, but by that they won't mean good and original, but a raunchy superhero film or It Breaks the Fourth Wall. They'll treat you like you're stupid, which is the one thing Deadpool didn't do. But hopefully, in the midst of all this, there will be a studio or two that will take the right lesson from this, like Fox did with Guardians of the Galaxy by greenlighting Deadpool and say, boy, maybe we can give them something they don't already have. Well said, Mr. Gunn. And that's just an excerpt of what he wrote. Frankly, the rest, where he cuts down an unnamed Hollywood suit down to size for having a memory as short as the box office run of Chappie, is also a great read. Sorry, Chappie. No hard feelings. 
and his point was sadly reinforced almost immediately as the Deadpool effect began to rear its ugly head and Hollywood did exactly what James Gunn predicted. And it started, ironically enough, with 20th Century Fox regarding the X-Men franchise. Producer Simon Kinberg, who was one of the primary creative architects of Fox's Marvel superhero cinematic universe, was asked what other specific properties he could imagine as R-rated ventures. And after saying the X-Men movies have their own tone, which is a PG-13 rated tone, he added regarding the potential Deadpool spiritual spin-off mutant team, X-Force, I could see being R-rated. Come on, man, it hasn't even been green lit, and you've decided what rating you're shooting for? Granted, Kinberg did clarify, I'm saying I could imagine a universe in which X-Force is R-rated, so we'll let that one slide and move on to Exhibit B. Just a couple days later, at New York Toy Fair, 20th Century Fox, them again, announced that the third solo Wolverine film will be rated R. Let's analyze this one. On the pro rated R side, Wolverine is clearly a character and property that would see a harder rating as a degree of freedom. After all, the character's trademark ability is to unsheathe metal claws from his knuckles and slice and dice his way to victory over his soon-to-be very bloody opponents. If you watched The Wolverine, that's the one where he goes to Japan, you know that very careful framing of shots was the only thing that kept that film from an R rating. Wolverine impaled plenty of bad guys, but the skewering usually happened just off-screen by about an inch. But deciding that nuance and restraint are just too darn limiting, the Wolverine will apparently be taken off his chain to dismember to his little Canadian heart's content in his third solo outing. But on the other hand, in the anti-R-rated camp, Wolverine 3 will be the final film for Hugh Jackman in the role. And after seven PG-13 rated films, the last one is going to be rated R? Who does that help? The significant population of kids that are fans of Wolverine and the X-Men have seen all of his previous installments only to be shut out of the final adventure? Does it help the parents of those kids, who granted should be paying closer attention to film ratings, but don't sometimes, and incorrectly assume that the new Wolverine movie will be fine for their kids because they've seen all the others, and we do like that Hugh Jackman. Besides, it's a superhero movie. Those are for kids, right? You know, I feel like I should take this opportunity to say that I certainly don't mean to be a prude when it comes to R-rated entertainment. I thought the kick-ass movies were a blast, and the fact that they had an absurd amount of violence and bad language, usually doled out by kids, was part of the fun. Sin City, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Jessica Jones, these all benefit from being geared towards more mature audiences. And for the most part, they're all based on books and comics which were for mature audiences to begin with. No one is trying to trick anyone into thinking that those are appropriate for kids, which they are not. I think that Watchmen is an excellent read and a pretty decent movie, but I've rarely been as horrified at the movies than when I watched a tired-looking set of parents walk into the movie theater for Watchmen with their four kids aged approximately 3 to 11 years old. Don't they know what's about to happen here? Someone's going to be raped. Rorschach is going to kill some dudes brutally in cold blood. Hey, Dr. Manhattan, where do you get your pants? Trick question, he doesn't wear pants. This is a story that is rated R and could only be rated R. Why are kids about to see this movie? But I digress. Returning to the main road and my Deadpool effect argument, I present two final examples of projects that are following in the bloody wake of the Merc with a Mouth. The first is the recent announcement that when Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is released on Blu-ray, it will be available as an R-rated extended edition. First of all, I'm a little weirded out about the fact that there's a Superman movie out there that even could be rated R. How joyless can this character get? 
The reason for the harder rating on DVD is apparently due to the addition of extended sequences of violence. I absolutely acknowledge that those extended sequences and scenes were shot long before Deadpool came along and made all the money. But would Warner Brothers be excitedly talking about an R-rated cut if Deadpool hadn't just established that R-rated superheroes might just make a big pile of cash? I'm not sure about that. But we are talking about director Zack Snyder here, and he does have a bit of a reputation for doing this, so who knows. Lastly, and most egregiously, is the news that Warner Brothers is suddenly eager to jumpstart production on the long-stalled Lobo project. If you're not familiar with the character, here are some of his defining traits. He dishes out extreme violence. He's able to take as much hurt as he can give, and has a healthy dose of anti-hero smart-assery. Sound familiar? Too familiar? Individually, none of these instances are necessarily a bad thing, except maybe that R-rated Superman. That's messed up. But when they're all announced in the shadow of Deadpool's massive success, it's hard not to roll your eyes and agree with James Gunn. One last thing. On a recent investors call, Walt Disney chairman Bob Iger discussed the possibility of a future big-screen Marvel Cinematic Universe film being rated R. He said, We don't have any plans to make R-rated Marvel movies. He may as well have just dropped the mic after this statement and hung up the phone. And isn't it kind of sad that someone announcing the equivalent of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, is what passes as a defiant maneuver in Hollywood these days? Rant over. If you're a sci-fi fan who perks up when you hear the words Sonic Screwdriver, TARDIS, or allons chances are you consider yourself a Whovian and devour all things Doctor Who. And in between TV seasons, you may be among the many that read his comic book adventures through time and space, published by Titan Comics. The comic book series devoted to the Tenth Doctor, that's the one played by David Tennant for you non-Hoovians, is illustrated by Italian comic book artist Elena Casagrande, who I had the pleasure of speaking with at New York Comic Con in October 2015. Now, one of the many things that makes Elena awesome is the fact that she'd apologize for her English skills and then turn around and be far more eloquent than many English speakers. And she can also draw the heck out of David Tennant's hair. So, uh, in 2014, Titan Publishing got the license to publish comics based on Doctor Who, and by the summer of that year, Titan had launched an ongoing series of adventures of the 10th Doctor, series based on the 11th, soon they would do the 12th Doctor. So, writing duties for the 10th Doctor was were handled by uh, Nick Abatsis, while the art was handled by my guest, Elena Casagrande. Welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Hi, nice to meet you, everyone. <laughs> so, um, as listeners can probably probably tell from the crowd noise, we're talking on the very busy show floor of New York Comic Con 2015. Um, how, how has it been? Has it been good? Have the fans been good to you? Yes, yes. I, I, I love Doctor Who fans. Yeah. That give me a lot of uh, good feedback and a lot of support. So thank you so much to uh, Wovians. Sure. <laughs> yeah. what, what sort of things do you like to see at Comic-Con? Do you get a chance to walk around and see things? Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just... You're chained stuck, to stuck this here. table. Yes. <laughs> I, I understand. So, you came from Italy, of course, yes. to be here. Um, how often do you get to travel to the U.S. to, to see fans, meet other artists, that sort of thing? Uh, actually, this is my fifth time in uh, New York. And um, I was been in uh, Los Angeles, too, for a couple of months. Uh, and so I have the opportunity to visit uh, San Diego Comic Con too, oh, good. and uh, 
it was a great experience uh, and um, I like to be in the US because the fans are different from the Italian ones. Oh, how so? Uh, because uh, here people uh, comes to you, uh, come to you and say great work uh, just to uh, show their support, you know. Uh, while uh, in Italy uh, they stay more in shadow <laughs> and all comment only on Facebook. <laughs> yes. The anonymous comments. Yeah. It's okay, I guess. Yeah. Um, tell me, let's talk about the Doctor Who project. How, how did you come to it? You had, had you worked with Titan before? Uh, no. Um, I worked with RDW Publishing because uh, they have the, the Doctor Who comics right. before Titan. Uh, I work uh, only on one issue uh, during... Uh, um, it's the Prisoners of Time storyline, yes, I think, right? Uh, the comic book series made during the 50th anniversary of the Doctor. And thanks to the writer, Scott Titton, uh, I had the opportunity to work on the issue about the Ten Doctor. Uh, right after that, uh, IDW lost the, the copyrights and uh, Titan uh, got it. But uh, with my big surprise they called me wow. uh, just asking if you uh, wanted to work on the new series about the ten doctor yeah. so uh, a dream uh, then one issues became a dream uh, along uh, a series absolutely that that's incredible I it's funny we have some of those issues actually and we're looking through as I was doing research thought like she's not only has she done Doctor Who she did the tenth yes. doctor before um, were, yes. were you what guess uh, which one is my favorite doctor? I was gonna say I was gonna say that if, if that in fact was your favorite so um, is it so let's talk about that is it difficult then as, as an artist to to capture David Tennant's uh, likeness and his spirit on the page um, no because David has a face so uh, full of um, um, detail or um, uh, particular detail that uh, just using a few of them you can recognize him like the the chin or the nose or just the hair yeah <laughs> so it That's was right. very easy and funny and uh, about the spirit maybe uh, just because uh, it's my favorite doctor uh, right after seeing the episodes I uh, just have in mind how to move uh, him in the comics uh, also uh, because Nick uh, uh, write him like he told so um, it's like I can be the doctor for a moment uh, in the comic. <laughs> I like that. that. That's great. When when you're dealing with licensed comics like like Doctor Who or, or anything else, but he's a famous franchise character, of course, are there extra steps to get approval from the BBC or anything like that? Do they have to look at it and say, uh, his hair is all wrong? <laughs> yes. Um, I work on licensed comics from uh, the beginning of my career. Uh, because I, I started with Ghost Whisper or Angels, Star Trek, uh, True Blood and other show. So um, several times I need to uh, the approbation from the production of the TV show. 
and uh, this time on the doctor everything is uh, under the supervision of BBC. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the script and my, my pages. But uh, I'm okay because uh, I feel uh, to have a lot of uh, freedom. Uh, I don't know if I uh, good in catch the, the, the serious, the atmosphere, the likeness, but I never had so much note to fix the page. <laughs> so I like I it. So. I feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, I, this is really sort of specific, but in, in the first few issues of the series, uh, then we meet Gabby Gonzalez, right, who lives in Brooklyn, New York. She eventually becomes the doctor's companion in the series. So you're from Italy. Titan is British. Uh, I know that series writer Nick Abadzis, he's British, but yes. does he live in New York at this yes. point? My, my question is, why Brooklyn? How did this get kicked <laughs> off? I think Nick uh, lives in Brooklyn. Uh, yes. That's the good. mystery is yeah. solved. Um, one reason that I'm asking is because I also used to live in Brooklyn, um, very close to Greenwood Cemetery, which is a big uh, location in that early, that story arc. Um, and I want to congratulate you on your art of Brooklyn and that, that neighborhood specifically. It feels so perfect. Oh, wow. I can't not tell you. That's a good I, rare, Rarely have I read comics where, or, you know, like, all right, New York, it's in every comic, whatever. Very rarely have I looked at, at a comic and thought, like, I, I know exactly where that location is, and it feels right. Uh, That's what the storefronts look like. I have to thank you, Google uh, Street View. <laughs> 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 In the first issues, I, uh, I use Google Street View because yeah. uh, um, I just knew uh, after my last visit in New York that uh, Gabby came from here. But uh, right after, uh, I uh, come to visit uh, uh, his quarter, so I take pictures. Good. Yes. That's perfect. Uh, so yeah, it's a great compliment because um, uh, you know uh, most of the comics are. Um, located here in the yeah. US and uh, my most um, uh, worry about is to be um, yeah. quite realistic or uh, let the reader uh, recognize the places because in Italy is totally different <laughs> so I'm happy I'm I was good in it. It, it was so perfect. The, I mean, there are shots in Greenwood looking over the uh, not the skyline of, of Brooklyn, and you can see Lower Manhattan in the background. I mean, it gets passed around our house like, look at this. <laughs> Honey, this looks like just where we used to live. Like, it sure does. I know what that building is. Um, <laughs> so, yes, perfetto is what I mean to say. That's horrible yeah. Italian. No, it's no, no, horrible, no. but you okay. deserve okay. an attempt. Um, you know, I, I also really love... Uh, uh, there's a, let me take a step back. Um, I love your version of the familiar moment when a character uh, sees the inside of the TARDIS for the first time. We see it all the time on TV uh, in the series, and, and your version of it with Gabby when she goes in, it's like a series of small little panels where, where she goes from shock to amazement to happiness. She seems relieved and almost giddy about it, which I really think is lovely, uh, and I thought was really perfect for a character who's really sort of based around looking for adventure. She wants more. She's never scared yes, about it. She's, yes. she's into it. Yeah, it was uh, from suggestion, uh, suggestion by Nick yeah. to show her never scared 
but uh, before surprised and then right happy because uh, um, he, uh, uh, she has this adventure spirit that uh, let her go with the doctor everywhere uh, without uh, without fear just to explore yeah. and uh, go far from uh, his uh, family troubles right. uh, or uh, uh, city troubles to uh, where uh, she feels in cage you know yeah. so yes the, the, the tiny panel was very funny because uh, from uh, Nick's idea I can um, feel Gabby's feelings and uh, beat and be a bit her so it's Nick and me in the yeah. uh, Gabby face uh, inside the, the TARDIS. I love it. It's a perfect combination then you two. It made me so happy. So um, in aside from Doctor Who, I know that, that you just wrapped up uh, Suicide Risk for, for Boom Studios. Was, is it hard to finish that and walk away from a project like that? <laughs> um, I work on uh, Suicide Risk because uh, Mike Carey uh, wrote it. Because uh, I'm a fan of Mike and uh, as soon as I heard he was writing it, I, I said, okay, I'm on it. <laughs> um, working on two projects at the same time was very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'd be happy to have some helps from assistants or friends uh, who can experience with me the comic work adventure. Uh, but uh, after two years, uh, because you said risk uh, has been my longer um, series I ever ma made. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, you know, you miss things when you never have have them. So when I finish, I realize, uh, I realize uh, in very deep feeling how much I put on the series. Uh, I was sad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can imagine. It, it has to be sort of a mixture of relief that you hit the finish line and you're yeah, still alive. Exactly. But that's so much of you went into it. It, it was a series that I create yes. together, Mike. Because uh, my, there were my characters, my uh, backgrounds, uh, how to move them, how to dress them. So yes, it was a sort, a kind of family. Of me, yeah. Right, right. So, um, tell us what's coming up next. So oh, fans yeah. are eagerly awaiting what uh, what projects you're doing next. Um, I stay still on the doctor. Good. Um, I hope as long as I can. <laughs> um, I'm working on a, a couple of uh, Italian projects. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, Criminal. It's an old comic that now uh, is coming back. Uh, a personal project uh, with other uh, great artists and friends. Uh, it's a self-production, but it's a kind of experiment where uh, we try to fun and uh, enjoy readers with uh, zombies and uh, other Tarantino styles. Excellent. Um, it came out uh, just in two weeks at the next Italian Comic Con in Lucca. And uh, I, I have different proposals uh, from uh, different uh, publishers uh, here. 
so now I adjust to plan uh, wh where I want to go. <laughs> that's good. It sounds like you're going to be very busy, and yes. I, that's that's great news for, for all your fans. So if people want to reach you online and uh, reach out and say how much they love what you're doing, <laughs> where can they reach you online? Is it uh, Facebook, Instagram? Where should they get you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Twitter, Tumblr, DeviantArt, and uh, Blogspot, I have my, my blog, and uh, I think it's okay, it's all, yeah, uh, just write Elena Casagrande. You'll find her, she's out there. Whatever you do though, don't call her Lara West, it's just a nickname. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, I really appreciate You're the welcome. time, and have a great show. Thank you very much to you. Elena Casagrande's most recent story arc of Doctor Who, The Tenth Doctor, just concluded in the monthly comics, but it will soon be released in a collected edition from Titan Comics. She was also recently among the creative team of The X-Files Deviation from IDW Publishing. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. The momentum is building after three episodes, and I'd love to hear what you think about this sonic adventure. What do you like? What deserves to be killed with fire? Leave me a message at the social media channels, and you might even hear your name on the podcast. You'll be famous in the ears of tens of listeners. What are those social media channels? Well, thanks for asking, I'll tell you. You can like the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and come check out some pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore Gigawatts on Instagram. Seriously, thanks to all of you that have been listening from episode to episode and have shared a reply. After the last episode, which featured a serious discussion with my son Scott about Star Wars theme park attractions, listener Adam Morgenstern said, Scott is my new favorite podcaster. Adam, I agree. I thought the kid killed it, and I'll try to have him back on the show again soon, as soon as he cleans his room. Thanks, Adam. Speaking of thanks, huge gratitude to sound magician, composer, and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this free travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please do share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago, and let people know that you're listening. Episode 4 is already under construction, and it's gonna be a good one. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome with our fradtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. What every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad We might think Luke and Leia's dead Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs>